Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Akila Jain, a host of the Israel Studies channel, where we discuss new academic research and publications relating to Israel. The city of Tel Aviv presents itself as a bastion of liberal values, tolerance, and ultimate freedom. But like many self-definitions, there is something of a gap between this description and the reality of everyday life. Much of the discourse concerning this descriptive gap regarding Tel Aviv and indeed Israel as a whole, focuses on attempts to preserve or contextualize this claim to social liberalism from the Israeli Jewish perspective. A new book by the anthropologist Andreas Hackel takes a different point of view. Invisible Palestinians, The Hidden Struggle for Inclusion in Jewish Tel Aviv, published by Indiana University Press, focuses on what he terms the immersive invisibility of Israel's minority Palestinian population, the challenges they face, the strategies they deploy, and ultimately the consequences of acts of personal and collective self-censorship that define and circumscribe their everyday life and presence in Tel Aviv. Andreas is a lecturer in social anthropology at Edinburgh University, from where he joins us today. Andreas, thank you and welcome. Hello. Hi. Um, to start, what brought you to this research topic? I came to this research topic uh, through my earlier work where I had been living in uh, Israel-Palestine for a while before that, um, working as a journalist and making uh, friends uh, among Palestinians and Israelis um, alike. And um, through some of those friends, I did uh, come to realize that there is uh, quite a large population of Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel and uh, Palestinian workers from the West Bank who make up the daily population of the city of Tel Aviv. And as I was um, looking at the various publications and talked to people about it, it uh, simply struck me how um, this uh, presence is little discussed and has remained uh, invisible in in many ways. And so I think my approach to this particular topic came through these experiences and then I decided to pick it up as uh, my work, um, working towards a, a PhD in social anthropology. Thank you very much. Um, as you said, alongside your training as an anthropologist, you also worked in Tel Aviv as a foreign correspondent, writing for publications in Austria. How did the two positionings, as an ethnographer and as a journalist, inform and influence each other? Yeah, in some ways I feel uh, lucky for the experience in journalism when it came to doing my academic research because uh, it does open up a different way of uh, writing um, in a sense although on the other hand anthropology has always been a story driven uh, way of writing it is a discipline that has always valued uh, you know what we call ethnographies which really appreciates the daily lives of people and tries to explain complex issues 
through uh, often very approachable um, ways. And in practice, uh, the interaction between my journalism and my academic work uh, sometimes overlap well, where I would be, um, for example, doing some background research for an article for uh, whether that was uh, a Swiss paper I was working for, or as you said, the Austrian newspapers uh, I was working for, um, or uh, sometimes it was also um, a background article for, for outlets such as uh, at the time it was a humanitarian news website called Erin, which is now called the New Humanitarian. So I've been sort of covering um, a variety of areas in the West Bank and also in the Gaza Strip, but also within Israel. And I think it was important specifically for someone doing a topic such as looking at Tel Aviv from the Palestinian perspective to also have that long-term experience of being in the West Bank. I've also lived in uh, Ramallah for a few months. You know, I've been to Gaza a few times through my work in journalism. And I, I had this experience before coming to this particular topic, which I think is crucial because you cannot look at something uh, such as Palestinian Tel Aviv without you know, understanding what Palestinian life in all of Israel-Palestine is today. Oh, important interesting insights and I think something that sometimes they've overlooked or not necessarily engaged with entirely. Um, so now the central thesis of your book is to quote that the colonial elimination of indigenous identity and sovereignty lives through the conditional urban inclusion of Palestinians in a liberal settler city. Um, Palestinians negotiate this contingent inclusion through what you describe as immersive invisibility. Before we go into the actual context, the text of the book itself, could you give us something of a working definition of what you mean by immersive invisibility? So immersive invisibility is something I developed through uh, thinking about the research I've collected and the experiences. And it emerged from a combination of uh, two things, as those two words indicate, immer immersion and invisibility. Um, invisibility is sometimes necessary for Palestinians to immerse uh, in the city of Tel Aviv. And I call it immersion because immersion is different from inclusion. Inclusion uh, suggests that there is some kind of, um, I wouldn't say, equality, but inclusion is a deeper sense of being included, feeling included, whereas immersion is something that you can do um, without necessarily having the possibility of um, being recognized as immersed. So uh, immersive invisibility is uh, therefore the um, employment of certain approaches and tactics of invisibility and visibility among uh, a minority to access a city, its opportunities, its spaces without being stigmatized. So essentially it is also a response to stigmatization and it is something that builds on a larger history of people doing research on minorities or people in various spaces that are stigmatized and have to adapt how they are perceived and what particular things they make visible and invisible in what particular situation. So uh, I guess the last thing I would add is that immersive invisibility has nothing to do with uh, assimilation. It is a tactical choice that adapts to certain situation. One example would be, for example, to take off particular kinds of clothing that are considered problematic in a 
situation of conflict in order not to bring up the topic of politics or it might be the choice to speak particular languages and not to speak other languages in certain situations so there are different kinds of invisibility that are involved there thank you very much it does come across as a very nuanced and multifaceted um, alignment of strategies and approaches towards trying to engage with the reality of everyday life in the city and it's something that does come across very very strongly in different aspects of your research as presented in the book um so now the first chapter of the book explores palestinian mobility into the jewish city and in the jewish city and i was particularly struck by the concept of mobile equity i wondered if we could develop this concept a little in relation to the encounters with your informers that you describe in this chapter. Yeah, so this chapter um, tries to center this idea of invisibility around mobility. And by mobility, I, I mean, for example, the commutes of Palestinian citizens of Israel from other areas uh, of Israel into Tel Aviv. And the question of equity and equality comes in when you consider the structural issues of uh, public transportation, where is it available and where it is not, and the basic barriers that a lot of Palestinians uh, face as they try to move into the city of Tel Aviv. And that, um, you know, perhaps ironically, uh, even uh, applies to Palestinians that live in Jaffa, which today forms an interconnected urban space with the city of Tel Aviv. But in Jaffa, I, I was lucky enough to spent some time with people working for the organization uh, Bahar, which is um, uh, supporting young Palestinian women and middle-aged Palestinian women from all kinds of backgrounds to find employment in uh, Tel Aviv and other areas uh, because that's simply where the jobs are and what I noticed is that even there in a place geographically so proximate you can see the various uh, barriers and obstacles that exist in order to access employment, in order to move into the city and crucially to feel safe there and to feel like you can express who you are without being stigmatized. Now, this is where the equality part comes in. So I'm talking about um, an unequal uh, kind of mobility here in this first chapter. And uh, I'm also trying to understand through the stories I explore which include the stories of uh, bus drivers from other areas of Israel who come to, to work in Tel Aviv, but also the stories of workers who come from the West Bank and go every day back and forth. So through these stories, um, I noticed when I, when I, I analyzed that, that the way these movements are sort of restricted and often do not lead to a kind of arrival that could be called someone arrives in a place where they feel like they could be at home, where they can be visible as who they are. So in the end, the mobility and the way these movements are structured into the city actually contribute to the, the wider invisibility of the Palestinian uh, population within Tel Aviv. So in a sense, um, and just maybe to give a last example on this, uh, in, the, in the chapter I talk about these bus drivers and I was very surprised when I met with someone at the uh, Dan bus company in Tel Aviv to hear that they had uh, many shuttle buses that had to bring in the um, uh, the bus drivers from Arab towns in the north of Israel uh, because 
they wouldn't be able to get to Tel Aviv with public transportation. Uh, and he told me that that problem doesn't exist among Jewish Israeli employees who come from their own towns in the north. And of course, there might have been improvements in transportation, but the, the crucial thing here is that these bus drivers are shuttled in and out of Tel Aviv. Many of them do not feel any sense of belonging to the city. They are not offered really a sense of belonging. And um, because of these comings and goings, a fluctuation of the population in Tel Aviv, uh, it is very easy to not recognize the Palestinians in Tel Aviv because if they are coming and going and they are not claiming any sort of residence or citizenship, they are very easily overlooked. So in a sense, the chapter is also about what contribution does mobility and movements uh, sort of give to the invisibility of the Palestinians in Tel Aviv. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, from, from an anecdotal perspective, I should say that um, your chapter prompted a very interesting observation on my part. Um, as you would know, um, delivery vehicles and delivery companies are proliferating at the moment. And I was wandering in Tel Aviv not very long ago, and I actually saw a large bus delivering a number of Palestinians working for one of the companies alongside their bikes, um, from which point they started off on their daily um, work. And I found that quite fascinating because I hadn't actually considered um, their presence or non-presence up until this point. Indeed, the invisibility as you describe it so vividly. Um, Moving on a little bit, I'm also quite curious about um, how you were able to recruit informers for your research because by their very nature the invisibility makes it i imagine somewhat more challenging somewhat more difficult to actually form connections form contacts and actually draw out the vividness of detail that you put in your book yeah there are different layers to this uh the first is that i i was lucky to have uh friends and acquaintances that uh were um either already living in Tel Aviv or had connections to the population there. And then I also entered uh, particular spaces uh, that I thought are of interest for the book I was planning or at that time for the PhD research. And that included Tel Aviv University, which has a large and uh, growing population of Palestinian students, um, as well as uh, some I would say strategic explorations, or maybe I should say chaotic and not strategic explorations of the city, where I would cycle cycle around the city, sometimes uh, try and understand the different workspaces, including uh, restaurants, uh, construction sites, uh, but also leisure spaces such as uh, the beach front, uh, the space between Jaffa and Tel Aviv. So I did do these explorative journeys and uh, tried to approach um, people as I met them. And then on the other hand, there were particular topics that emerged as being interesting. That included, um, you know, we'll go through the chapters, but um, the sort of middle upper class professionals in the city, but just as well the working class, but also activists, uh, certain people involved in nightlife, um and uh many more so i think it was a combination of uh already existing networks that i could use to get to know people um but also exploring and making a plan about what are the particular different uh, elements of palestinian life in tel aviv that are important Mm. 
Um, staying with Tel Aviv University, uh, the next chapter um, discusses experiences of Palestinians studying at Tel Aviv University, um, alongside observations of some of your own personal experiences while taking classes there during your doctoral research. Um, there's a sentence in that chapter that actually stuck with me. You said that um, immersion at an Israeli university, in fact, politicized some Palestinian students and deepened an awareness of a distinct national identity. In what ways? Um, in the way that, I mean, there are very different kinds of uh, people studying at universities, right? You always have all areas of political, ideological backgrounds, and that applies to Jewish Israelis as well as it applies to Palestinian uh, at Tel Aviv University. But if if I were to sort of, you know, try and generalize in that sense, I would say that for many uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel who come to study at Tel Aviv University, at the beginning, there is this encounter with the city of Tel Aviv, but also with a majority of Jewish Israelis studying at that university that is new for many of them, because in most uh, Arab towns in Israel, we still have, you know, segregated education systems. There is not necessarily an extent of inter, uh, sort of inter-ethnic contact uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And this, this contact with um, Jewish Israelis, with the campus, but also the contact with a lot of other members of their own community is sometimes politicizing in a sense that there are different political groups on campus that can be joined. There are social events that are being organized. There are, of course, events around uh, the commemora commemoration of the Nakba of 1948, the, um, the catastrophe of Palestinian displacement. And there are other ways of engaging with um, the Palestinian community. Now, that is true for some, but of course not for all and there are a lot of students as well that deliberately stay away from politics because they are not interested and there are of course also a lot of students uh, i would say many of them as well female palestinian students that do not really engage with uh, the city of tel aviv or with the campus in an in a way similar to uh, how others might do it. So they might just be staying in the dormitories and they might always go home on the weekends. So there are different degrees of immersion, right? So some students would really use the opportunity um, to become politically active uh, or to become socially active in the city of Tel Aviv, whereas others are not that much engaged. But um, yeah, so I guess the next step from that politici politicization, and I, I assume uh, that might be your next question, but uh, tell me if I'm wrong, is uh, what follows that initial period of politicization? Because as I try and show in the in a book that sometimes the most outspoken activists who are taking part in protests, who are uh, really trying their best, uh, such as uh, one of my friends who was selling Arabic books outside university. Uh, he was engaged in political protests, but he also studied law. And at the time when these students are considering to apply for internship positions in Israeli law offices or try to advance their career, they unfortunately realized that they need to somehow moderate or you know, negotiate what do they make visible and what they don't make visible. And here again, we are back to the question of invisibility. 
that the kind of liberalism of careers and social mobility and becoming successful that is in front of their eyes as students at a leading university, that kind of you know promise implicitly demands from them to not be extremely political, to try and uh, appear as hardworking, um, very uh, smart and perhaps exceptionally smart individuals, but not to be extre not to be associated with so-called extremists, not to wear the Palestinian scarf and things like that. So this kind of symbolism becomes heavily, uh, you could say, negotiated in day-to-day -day life. So there is this, you could almost say, a sequence of initial politicization that is often followed by a realization about the pragmatic requirements of a career as a professional in the economy of Tel Aviv or Israel. Yep. Yes, absolutely. That is just a touch on exactly what I wanted to talk about, which is um, what does happen next. And I mean, to my mind, it's certainly very much connected to the mantra that's been, um, that's been repeated for a very long time about education as a means of social mobility and economic emancipation, which I think are very important, if maybe at times distorted, notions in the neoliberal age. Um, and I mean, you talk in the next chapter about informal and semi-formal um, aggregations, communities of Palestinian professionals who are looking to try to find ways of negotiating this tension and at the same time trying to do something that their position allows them, but at the same time without necessarily stepping too far in terms of overtly challenging the imposed invisibility. Could you tell me a little bit about this, please? Uh, yes. Um, so just before I uh, elaborate on that, I wanted to add that uh, it is important to understand that when I say there is a requirement by the economy and by the prospects of careers to sort of moderate certain kinds of visibility, that does not mean that people stop being active or being activists. So there are you know, politically highly active individuals that are nevertheless pragmatic about certain situations where they have to adapt. So I just wanted to make sure that um, we are clear about that these kinds of forms of invisibility are always situational and strategic. They are not necessarily connected to a person's identity. Now, when we talk about these uh, kind of loose networks of Palestinian professionals within Tel Aviv, they included at the time of my uh, my my research, and uh, that is actually um, you know, is looking back at two thousand and fourteen, for example. At that time, it was a loose network of Palestinian citizens of Israel who were successful either as professionals uh, in the private sector, or they worked in the NGO sector, or some of them were artists and celebrities. All of them were either working or living in Tel Aviv, and individually, each of them felt a sense of first a kind of suspicion about meeting too many other Palestinians in the city, because in a way, the anonymity the city provides can be useful. You can immerse in restaurants, you can go out and enjoy the city's urban life. But the problem is that Tel Aviv structures this kind of engagement with the city only to a point where 
you realize that either you make visible that you are Palestinian and therefore you are stigmatized or you keep on trying to blend in while at the same time not necessarily feeling at home. Um, and many of these uh, highly successful uh, professionals at some point figured out that they really do want to do something despite living in Tel Aviv as individuals, uh, many of them went back to Haifa or to their towns. Some of them actually lived in Tel Aviv. So they created these regular meetings and dinners where they would get together in restaurants and places in Tel Aviv, usually inviting guest speakers uh, to join them. And sometimes these meetings were creating a kind of hyper visibility of, you could think of 20 Palestinians sitting in a function room in the back of a restaurant in Tel Aviv and talking in Arabic. And some of them told me how when they were there, they were, even they were surprised by how strange it felt and how strange everyone reacted. You know, there's this quote from one of the female participants of that group who said, um, people in a restaurant saw 20, I think 20 Palestinians speaking Arabic and they wondered where the hell did they come from, right? So there was this kind of, and, and that leads to the point that there's always a tension between collective organizing and individual immersion in Tel Aviv, which is at the heart of the problem. So Tel Aviv welcomes Palestinians as hardworking individuals who take part in its leisure spaces or contribute to the economy through uh, exceptional careers. But once Palestinians form a collective that is visible and appears strong and political, the city reacts in very different ways. And we might talk about this in a later chapter, but that also includes um, quite um, shocking reactions, in fact. Quite, quite. Um, I mean, this touches on a vignette that actually stood out in this chapter, but looking at the issue of um, education and economic prospects from a slightly different perspective, um, you describe a meeting with Ahmad, um, an 18-year-old who's working in a popular eating spot in Tel Aviv. And... Something that occurred to me is that um, for many people in the workforce, for most people in the workforce, there is something of a belief that work or education, as we said earlier, can allow ultimate at some point in time to some form of social or economic equity. Um, did you get the bottom? You, the conversation you had with Ahmad seemed to present him as describing his positioning his work as very, very transactional. What do you think? Do you think that um, participation can incrementally, slowly, over time, perhaps gradually erode some of the existing limitations and boundaries that Palestinians in Tel Aviv encounter, or would this transactionality endure indefinitely? Yeah, there are certainly situations where I know that there is a sense of meeting, you know, uh, at equal footing, having a sense of respect and equity between colleagues and friends, between Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel and uh, Jewish citizens at the workplace. And there certainly is that too. But in the case of uh, Ahmed, who was one of many workers in this popular eating spot close to where I lived, the way their work 
uh, proceeded from day to day was um, on the one hand, very exhausting, uh, long hours, hardly any holidays. They also approached the city of Tel Aviv as a space to be used. And this is another sort of pattern that goes throughout the book that a lot of these working class Palestinians do not even uh, think about the possibility of calling Tel Aviv their home, in part because in the Palestinian community as well, living in Tel Aviv is not necessarily considered a, a respectable life goal, if you know what I mean. But also, but also because Tel Aviv does not necessarily invite Palestinians with open arms. Um, but in the case of um, Ahmed, who was living with his his Palestinian colleagues in a flat just close to you know Dizengoff Street, and some there were between eight and ten people in a in a single flat. They worked as much as they could. They made money, but their idea was that they would sort of save up money and eventually open up their own shop or their own uh, restaurant somewhere in their hometowns, be it Ub uh, al or Taibe or wherever it is. Um, but what struck me about Ahmed uh, is, as I describe in the book, we sat down on this bench outside of uh, uh, Dizengoff Center and had this long, long chat. And what fascinated me about him was that uh, although he did feel um, that there is a lot of inequality, that there is a lot of sort of disrespect from, from his boss, but also that um, he felt sort of marginalized. But at the same time, he was extremely curious about Tel Aviv and he was uh, had a lot of respect for Tel Aviv. So you could see this tension between his curiosity about this city and a certain, almost a certain desire to engage with it, but at the same time, always falling back to the point that politically Tel Aviv is not a legitimate place for him to be because he considered it an occupied place in a sense. Uh, culturally, it is also not a good place to be because for him it was in some sense uh, forbidden, uh, including the alcohol, um, the sort of uh, the ease of social interactions between men and women, dif different genders and things like that. So that that, that was fascinating. I think um, uh, he was, uh, yeah, one of the most um, multifaceted uh, 18-year-olds I met in Tel Aviv. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think he presented a level of self-awareness and observational curiosity that um, many years on from my 18th birthday, I don't think I have, which I particularly <laughs> enjoyed reading about vignettes, yes. Um, just to say for our readers, it's important to know that Dizengoff Street is the central commercial thoroughfare in Tel Aviv, and in many ways, as I think it's um, sort of created by consumerist culture, is a melting pot for a wide range of Israeli residents of different persuasions and backgrounds. Um, just a reminder that this is the Israel Studies channel of the New Books Network. Today, our guest is Andreas Hackel of Edinburgh University, who is talking about his new book, Invisible Palestinians, which is published by Indiana University Press. Um... Seguing on from Dizengoff Street, um, the next chapter talks about urban leisure. And you said something that struck me at first as counterintuitive when I thought about it, and I thought I'd ask you to elaborate a bit further. On page, well, it's the digital version of the book, on page 114, um, you say that urban leisure may appear less political 
at least at first, because it is deeply entangled with consumerism. Could you expand on that? Um, yeah, what I tried to say by that is that um, leisure in a sense of going to a restaurant or participating in the mainstream places provided by this Jewish Israeli city is not considered a political act in, in any sense, but it often turns into political questions when you talk to Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinians in a city who um, feel this estrangement of, yes, they do want a city and they want its urban life, but they also want to feel comfortable to participate in it with all aspects of their identity, including gender, but also their political identity. And um, that is not always as easy. And aside from the various stories of people you know, being uh, sent back by bouncers in clubs or um, individuals going out and sort of um, one uh, quite successful female professional I talked to uh, told me about um, these weird situations when she goes out with friends having a drink and she's approached by someone who shows interest in her um, and they have a chat and they always ask them where are you from and when the Palestinians say I'm from here then very often the Jewish Israelis say no where are you really from before that and then, and when they say I'm Palestinian or I'm Arab, that often leads to a situation where it is either this kind of awkward silence or it is this uh, exoticizing, oh, that's so great that you're here, um, or it is something else. But the elephant in the room always comes up at some point. And, uh, and this shows um, in a way that this non-political participation in a consumerist leisure space in a city very often turns into, you know, quote and unquote, problematic politics uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, I think on some level what comes across is that actually apoliticalism, to coin a word I'm not quite sure exists, is ultimately impossible because at some point the politics of a situation are going to be thrust on the population and they do need to be negotiated. Um, which is quite a challenging place to be in, one imagines. Um, you've talked about gender, and something that does come across across the book is that it seems that Palestinian women face very specific, and, and maybe it's a question of my individual perception, but seemingly more intractable dilemmas in terms of negotiating their immersive invisibility. Um Maybe you could say something about how gender might, or might not, if I'm wrong, magnify or complicate questions of visibility for Palestinians in Tel Aviv. Yeah, in a sense, I would sort of, of course, suggest uh, everyone also engage with uh, Palestinian women talking about these issues or uh, considering films such as uh, Maisalon Hamoud's film about Palestinian women in in Israel called uh, Barabaha or In Between uh, and other works. But from my experiences, you know, sort of, I was, I was lucky enough to have uh, good friends and uh, acquaintances and contacts uh, among both the LGBT community uh, of Palestinians in Tel Aviv and also among Palestinian women who were living in Tel Aviv or studying at the university and so on. And what I learned from them was really, um, a variety of things, but, uh, but, 
but one is that in situations where let's say uh, a Palestinian um, gay man who goes out in Tel Aviv and uh, enjoys the city's leisure spaces has a has a good job in the city and uh, meets other Palestinians on the streets of Tel Aviv then sometimes and that also includes for example young Palestinian women who are going out for a drink with their friends and then there might be this idea in the background if one of the waiters is from their hometown is there some gossip or at the dormitories at the university dormitories um, you know kind of Palestinian villages sometimes reproduce themselves to the point that um, uh, men are trying to talk about their um, uh, Palestinian friends or acquaintances who come who are women and who are also engaging with Tel Aviv so there's this whole um, you could say a complication of uh, invisibility being sometimes necessary in relation to the city the Jewish Israeli city but also in relation to other Palestinians and that can mean of course for particular for people with specific genders uh, um, and especially for Palestinian women but also for the LGBT community this is an extremely difficult field to to navigate because on the one hand Tel Aviv is the you know the the city to go out to to enjoy nightlife to to spend time with friends but on the other hand there is always this underlying tension that on the one hand you might be stigmatized or misinterpreted for being Palestinian or Arab and on the other hand you also need to be careful not to enjoy the city too visibly and too much because you might worry about any kind of consequences that could follow from your own community and there's this historical long historical um, image of Tel Aviv in the Palestinian community as a somehow I would say immoral place um, that goes back to the very early days of Tel Aviv when some Palestinians were, you know, kind of also spent time in some of the bars or uh, um, affairs that took place in the city. And I think this is precisely what you were asking about uh, this complexity of invisibility navigating politics, but also gender politics, also patriarchy, and also other forms of uh, control. Yes. And I think so, just to cut across you there, I, mean, I think what, to be fair, I think it's important to say that one of the things I most enjoyed about reading this book is that these complexities come across very, very strongly without being shoehorned into a single overarching theory or exposition about what is or what should be the situation. Yeah, I think it is not that easy to, to pack these complex um dynamics into a very accessible and easy to read book and uh yeah i appreciate you saying this but for me the key to this is really to take people's stories seriously and to um you know and as you probably saw a large part of the book is very story driven people driven and uh really tries to to to, to create this impression that the insights really flow from them right i'm here i'm here to mediate the story i'm the one you know writing the book but but the complexity really lies in the experiences and uh, ideas of palestinians in tel aviv 
Mm -hmm. It is correct to say, in a more general sense, that anthropology does not look to have a specific research question to be tested, but rather allows um, a sense to evolve or to sort of coalesce from the body of material you gather from your um, informers. In that sense, do you think anthropology as a discipline is particularly well suited for exploring the condition? if that's not a patronizing word to use, of Palestinian Israelis and ought to play a much clearer and sharper role in thinking more clearly about what can be done for the future? Well, I wouldn't want to upset my colleagues and friends from other disciplines, so I'm not going to, <laughs> to, to say that anthropology is necessarily the best suited, but I can say that um, the, the, the kind of research uh, I did you know, spending more than two years really, really trying to dive deep into this um, uh, sub-aspect of a, of a city and Palestinians in Tel Aviv really speaks to the task of making something unseen seen. And it is about collecting these insights and stories that will ultimately Make, access, make, make this reality accessible for people who have not previously seen it in that sense. And I think anthropology often starts from this uh, idea, and I, I think at least for me personally, when I do research, there is some kind of, you know, some something that isn't right, or there's some, some kind of su su suspicion where you want to bring up about a well-established truth. And that can often be the absence of people seeing something that you see. And so in that sense, it is, it, it is better. It is definitely better than statistics, because if you would approach the topic of Palestinians in Tel Aviv from the viewpoint of conventional you know, statistics or let's say urban policy, you would try and find the numbers and then you would maybe say what a lot of people told me at the beginning of the research, that the numbers of Palestinians in Tel Aviv are negligible. But that is only so because they're not counted, which is itself part of the structural uh, drive of, you know, sort of kind of eliminating the Palestinian power, visibility and collective presence within yes. Tel Aviv. Um, yes. Yeah. Right, right. Um, in the next chapter, you write that in relation to art and creativity, uh, art is often a space for expressing marginalized realities and identities and thus represents um, a performative aspect of politics in divided societies. Um, in the context of a book, I understand this to mean that arts is a vehicle, if you like, for forcing a Palestinian visibility into a landscape where their presence is accepted on condition of invisibility. Um, thinking about the three artists whom you meet and discuss in chapter five of your book, um, do you think that art and artistic creation can make a meaningful difference to the status quo? Oh, I definitely think art is a, a very important vehicle for uh, for any political project. For um, you know, be it uh, abstract art or straightforward, um, let's say, political campaigning or creative work that is fighting against something. But at the same time, um, to be a Palestinian artist in Tel Aviv is a difficult balancing act. And I think the difficulty lies in, on the one hand, 
being looked at by Palestinian society and by Jewish Israeli society with sometimes competing expectations. So if you take certain celebrities um, who are Palestinian and who might be actors or they might have uh, been famous for their music or anything like that, they are very often in public discussions highlighted as either, you know, too Palestinian or not Palestinian enough or too, too Israeli or not Israeli enough. Um, so there is this question of the publicity and the visibility of art making it a very easy target for all kinds of, you know, battles being taken out. So, but on the other hand, there is also the experience of Palestinian writers. So uh, Raji Barhish, for example, who um, uh, I was lucky to meet, who told me about his difficulties of uh, trying to be an Arabic language Palestinian writer based in Tel Aviv, uh, and then also being a queer writer. So there you see that his work absorbed in many ways the immersion of Palestinians in Tel Aviv, the, the kind of lifestyle you can have there. But at the same time, his practice as an artist ended up being in situations where he told me that Tel Aviv is a city that hates the Arabic language, or he told me about uh, situations where he was trying to read his work in Arabic and was simply, you know, in a way disappointed that it always had to be translated because although Tel Aviv is, you know, where it is, uh, hardly anyone actually understands Arabic, uh, although it is an official language. Or, it is an or... official language, and yes. Mm -hmm. And indeed, many Israeli Jews do have a background of speaking Arabic from their forebears who immigrated to Israel from the Arab world in the 40s and 50s. That's correct, yes. And I um, think to somebody, it says yeah. something about um, the capacity of a society to negotiate um, anything other than a very, very rigid and dogmatic conception of what is legitimate identity. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, as, I, I think suppose, just to, sorry, yeah. please go ahead, I cut across you. No, no, no I, just to add that um, one of the, the terms that always comes up, which you definitely know, is uh, the good Arab, right? Who Who is a good Arab? And there's a Hebrew version of this and, uh, of course, uh, an Arabic version of this. And it goes back, um, like Hillel Cohen's book shows, into the early days of intelligence collaboration and settler colonial uh, needs for securing uh, good and bad Arabs among the local population, people they could collaborate with and people who were labeled as bad Arabs. And these kinds of discourses are still very prominent, much more than we think. And they also affect artists and the constant uh, sort of uh, public discourses about their work, you know. Um, so this idea of a good Arab being a hardworking Arab who is somehow perhaps critical, but not too critical, who accepts the legitimacy of uh, Jewish-Israeli sovereignty, who uh, accepts not just that, but also um, tries to moderate their political visibility in the way that it doesn't violate this, uh, you know, unwritten contract of let's just keep pro pragmatic relations. But once you're an artist and you're Palestinian and you're doing something truly radical, well, good luck finding an Israeli gallery that will exhibit your work or uh, getting funding for this. So maybe this is the last point I will say to your question that the, the, the complexity of 
I think doing Palestinian creative art and the political versions of it is also that you constantly have to navigate these uh, grounds around who can fund it, uh, who will exhibit it. And, um, and I think it sometimes results in this, you know, difficulty of um, actually feeling free to express your identity and everything you want to say through art. Um, yeah, because you need to think about these pragmatic things if you want to be successful as an artist. Quite indeed, certainly. Um, yes. Um, in the chapter about marginalized activism, you describe a fascinating encounter between Lina, a Palestinian acquaintance of yours, and an Israeli woman during a tour of Palestinian Tel Aviv arranged by Zohrot. And for the benefit of the listener, she says Zohrot is an Israeli NGO that works to expand the very limited narratives appended to the 1948 War of Independence and the Nakba, um, the expulsion of Palestinians from Israel. Um, what struck me most about this ongoing discord, this conversation between the two, was that at one point, the Israeli woman talks about feeling that she herself was being expelled from a city. Could you, for the benefit of, benefit of our listeners, expand on this encounter and what one can take from it? Yeah, this was uh, one of many very interesting tours that um, ha have been organized in Tel Aviv that sort of try to make visible the, the remnants of uh, old Palestinian areas and towns and settlements and uh, places of interest within the space of Tel Aviv. And um, as we came to one of these, uh, which you know then became sort of resettled with uh, Jewish immigrants uh, later on, who were then more recently themselves at threat of displacement or having been relocated because of redevelopment of those areas uh, and uh, sort of planning issues and things like that. But the interaction was uh, really about a misunderstanding, but also an interesting uh, synergy. So the synergy, the synergy is, as I just mentioned, that some people are displaced after moving into houses of displaced Palestinians. While that may be true, um, as my Palestinian friend in that situation also pointed out to uh, the woman living in one of these houses, that it is not quite the same to say that, um, you know, urban developers are displacing someone from the kind of displacement that Palestinians as a national collective were facing. So although um, there are these synergies between, uh, let's say, class-based, you could say class-based urban inequalities that at the extreme end also include clearances of uh, informal um, areas or sort of the, the, the threat of relocation for certain populations and um, other kinds of this way. But yeah, it is essentially different. And I think that is what the conversation was about. And uh, what struck me as well is that there was a sense of connection that both of them realized the conflict they had around these discussions of who is right and who is wrong just made them both really sad. And it made them both really sad because it was a zero sum game in a sense. You know, they were both, they were both victims in a way, and some of their frameworks of understanding the world prevented them from seeing how exactly the other person is the victim, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, yes, certainly. Um, 
I would like to think, I don't know if, if there's any way of testing this, but I would like to think that um, both parties came away from this encounter with the capacity to think a little bit more deeply about the experiences of other people and to integrate this into their broader worldview. Don't know, but um, we can always try to learn a little bit more, I suppose. Um, the final descriptive chapter of your book discusses issues of Palestinian visibility in Tel Aviv in the context of two episodes of concerted violence, the first being the 2014 Gaza campaign and the second being the domestic, the domestic specifically fallout from the 2021 hostilities. Between the one and the other, um, has anything changed in your opinion with regards to the invisibility of Palestinians? Well, from what I can tell uh, uh, from some conversations I had when I did some book launch events uh, just uh, very recently um, back in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, um, the Palestinians in Tel Aviv I met and talked to and some of them I had known uh, before said that, if anything, things have become worse than uh, better. And while uh, I'm not the right person to ask the questions, I would think that um, you know, that last chapter really shows how this idea of immersive invisibility as a pragmatic approach to living in a city is only feasible for Palestinians to the extent that they are experiencing events, violent events, political events and stigmatization and all of these things in different but slightly similar ways render them a problem in a city. and. Or rather than and, being perceived as a problem, I think it's important to say. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, or, or being sort of problematized in a way that, um, you know, during the Gaza war, suddenly um, Palestinians in Zarif were hiding in the same shelters with their Jewish Israeli neighbors, uh, but they also uh, heard from protests in Haifa that were attacked by nationalist uh, mobs. They heard about people being attacked in the street, and they, of course, listened to Hebrew conversations about the Gaza war and they are sitting in the same buses or share the same classroom at university with Jewish Israelis who might be soldiers or who might uh, know reserve soldiers that are currently in Gaza or uh, joining the campaign. So these kind of situations really show that the idea that Tel Aviv is a disconnected bubble that is shielded from the, the wider violence of the uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is 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 really a marriage and something that, um, yeah. And this idea that Tel Aviv is a bubble is basically um, unmasked in a large number of situations that are not just exceptional events like uh, the various uh, conflicts in Gaza and the the bombardments of Gaza or. Um, different uh, violent events in the West Bank, but they also include things such as uh, National Israeli Memorial Days, uh, Independence Day, uh, Re Remembrance Day for um, you know the Israeli side of the the victims of of of, of violent conflict and terrorism, and how these events are you know if you imagine uh, there would be a siren and everyone in Tel Aviv you know would stand up and commemorate. Uh, the Israeli side of fallen soldiers in a conflict. What do you do as a Palestinian? You know, are you are you standing up with everyone around you who is standing up, or, or, or do you not stand up and thereby make visible your opposition to this nationalist ritual? So, for most Palestinians in Tel Aviv and other Jewish Israeli cities, 
these kind of events really exemplify the, the fact that yes, on a day-to-day -day basis, you can tell yourself that you blend in and you can make things work, but so many times a year and every year you realize that it, it is at least in a certain, to a certain extent, uh, an unfeasible, um, situation that you you cannot yeah yeah that immersion and access are not the same as citizenship and equality basically that's what yeah. i'm trying to say indeed and i don't want to introduce a for a note of false optimism into our conversation um but two things strike me the first is that um invisibility is a way of avoiding careful thinking about the consequences of one's presumptions and I think that, as from reading your book, filters through um, the Israeli-Jewish psyche. The second is, that, and in that context, the opportunity to engage with first-hand narratives of the very, very complex and complicated negotiations that Palestinian Arabs have to carry out in order to inhabit a space is eye-opening for somebody who does not need to face this on a day-to-day -day basis. But the second is a specific vignette that you report near the end of the book, which I found quite interesting. Um, one of the informers, she goes into, I guess I might call it a grocery store. Um, on Independence Evening, she was buying vegetables and tends to have a quiet evening by herself rather than being caught up in the festivities of the moment. And the... Um, the Kupa it, the Kupa, the, God, I forgot my English, I beg your pardon. The clerk selling um, the goods to her, asks her what, aren't you going to celebrate? And she says quite eloquently, but without any anger or hostility, that actually it's quite difficult for me to celebrate something that evokes memories of the death of my grandfather, of the displacement of my family from their ancestral lands to Libya, um, not to Libya, to Lebanon, and to Syria and to elsewhere. I mean... You think about it. And he says, yes, I see what you mean. Um, again, I don't think this is necessarily um, a harbinger of what could happen. But on the other hand, it does open up the knowledge of possibilities, which one can perhaps try to hold on to. Um, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us about your book, um, Invisible Palestinians. Before you go, I just wondered if you would care to say a few words about your ongoing or future research agenda. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for hosting me. And um, I can say that the, the things I've been working on more recently are not too connected to this particular book, but they also deal with uh, work lives, with inequalities, uh, with a focus on uh, refugees and their inclusion in new forms of digital uh, work and e-commerce. So my current work actually looks at the, the various impacts and risks, positive uh, opportunities, but also challenges that are uh, emerging from the growing involvement of refugees in gig work and online work and in new forms of precarious labor. Right, right. Sounds quite fascinating. Um, Andreas Hackel of Edinburgh University, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your book, um, Invisible Palestinians, which is published by Indiana University Press. 
And thank you very much for listening. Do join us again soon for more fascinating research and academic books relating to the topic of Israel studies. Thank you and have a good day.